Hebrews chapter 6. This morning we're going to begin in verse 4. If you're with us last week, we looked at what to me was a very sobering text because it called us basically to grow up. A lot of people try to experience the Christian life as babies as opposed to experiencing the Christian life as God called us to mature believers. If last week's message was sobering, and it was for me, then I don't really know how that we would describe the passage that we look at this morning. Uh, Because this passage is infinitely heavier than the one from last week. It's a passage that has been debated for centuries as to its precise meaning. As a matter of fact, it still proves today among those who would debate it to be a very divisive portion of Scripture. It cannot be understood, and we should not try to understand it as anything less than a warning, because that's what the writer of Hebrews does. Now, you may have been under the impression, if you listen to preaching on television too much, that uh, the Bible doesn't warn us about anything. I want to tell you that this passage proves that to be incorrect. This is a warning, and it is a dire warning for the church. See, there are unfortunately many who have went through this life, the short life that God gives us, They have traveled through it, and they've ended this life, and they have stepped out into eternity thinking, maybe, that they were all right, but indeed stepping out of this life into an eternity separated from God because they did not heed this warning from Hebrews chapter 6. This is a warning about false comfort. See, too many people have false comfort. As a matter of fact, let's be honest. I try to be honest with you. Some of you sitting here this morning may have false comfort. You're very satisfied. You're very satisfied with where you're at in your faith. You're very satisfied with where you are in your relationship with Christ. You're satisfied. And that's a bad place to be. Because this is a warning against comfort. This is a warning against sitting around and being content. See, unfortunately, in my experience, too many pastors allow this for their churches, and too many church people are satisfied with it. The writer of Hebrews warns all of us this morning, not because he hates us, not because he even has questions about us, but because he deeply loves us. And most of us do not have enough love for other people to warn them about this warning that we're going to read. See, we do not want to judge people, because that's a buzzword in our society. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to hurt their feelings. And let us never get to the point where we have people that don't like us. Friends, there will be people who will die today. They'll take their last breath and they'll step out of this life and enter an eternity separated from God in hell forever because they do not heed this warning. We will allow people to like us all the way to an eternity without Christ. you'll stand with me as we read God's Word this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they, have cru- since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and as often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, in, and its end is to be burned Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to, as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You may be seated. He uses a very interesting word as he begins here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. He uses the word impossible. If you go back and look at the previous passage that we had had before, we look at the need that we have to grow up, we see here in these verses that if we do not grow up, if we do not mature in our faith, then we remain at a place that is very dangerous. These verses here contain strong and disturbing language. God's not messing around in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. Most of you, most of the time when I was reading this, I would glaze right through it and just go on, but God's not messing around here. He says that it is impossible to restore those who have fallen away to repentance. He uses the word here, impossible. If you want to go and look it up in the Greek, guess what it means? Impossible. There's not a translation error. As a matter of fact, there are versions of the Bible that will try to minimize what this text is saying here. But he's using the word impossible. This is a big deal because God doesn't use the word impossible. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that all things are possible, that there is nothing that is impossible for God. But here he uses the word impossible. He says it is impossible for someone who has been through these parts of the Christian life that he describes here and that we're going to look at, he says it is impossible to restore them to repentance. Friends, we need to wake up and pay attention when God starts talking about people who are going to go to hell because it is impossible for them to be restored. That's kind of a big deal. Especially because he's not talking about people in the third world who have never heard the gospel. He's not talking about unreached people groups. He's not talking about people who went out and hated the gospel for their whole life. He's talking about church people. Let me tell you why. There's three possible solutions to who he is speaking of here. There are those who would hold to a more, what we would call, Armenian theology, and they believe that those who are Christians can lose their salvation. And so they believe that this is who this is talking about here. There's another group who would say that these are people who have participated in the activities of the church. Look at them, beginning in verse 4. The Bible says that they have been enlightened. They have been enlightened. This very clearly, when you look at it in the original language and you look at throughout church history and how this word was used, it definitely could relate to baptism. These people have been baptized. 
The next thing we see here is that they have tasted. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Our minds in that could immediately be drawn to the Lord's Supper. We know that neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper save us, so it is most definitely possible that someone could partake in those two things and still not know Jesus. He talks about also at the end of verse 4 about having shared in the Holy Spirit. If you go back and you look at throughout church history, this was something that was often symbolized by the laying on of hands. That you receive the Spirit through the laying on of hands. Well, you can definitely do that and not know Jesus. I mean, you could have the whole world gather around you and lay hands on you and pray for you and never know Christ. He says in verse 5 that they have heard the Word. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Well, that definitely could refer to preaching. I mean, let's be honest. In a room this size, some of you are lost. That's okay. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you came to hear the Word today. But just because you hear me preaching this morning doesn't mean that you leave and you know Jesus. And then finally, he says there in verse 5, they've witnessed some powers. They have the powers, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. It's very easy to not know Christ and still witness what he is doing. In the early church, we know that they did many miraculous signs, that there were people raised from the dead, that there were people healed, that many miraculous things happened. And guess what? You could see those things and still not believe in Jesus. This is one explanation. It makes good sense. But I I want to provide you with a third that I think is a little more accurate. Who is he talking about here? Well, if you remember from the book of Hebrews so far, we have continually went back time and time again to another book of the Bible. We've went all the way back to the second book of the Bible and talking about Exodus. And we have seen time after time things that he has mentioned, even quotes that he has given from the book of Exodus. And this time is no different If we think of those who witnessed all the goodness of God, they were brought out of captivity in Egypt, and they were brought to the edge of the promised land, but they would not trust God enough to get into the promised land. They had been enlightened. They had tasted. They had seen God's Word move. They had seen His Spirit move. They had heard His law come from Moses. They had witnessed His power as He sent all of these plagues as He had parted the Red Sea, and they still did not believe. They had done all of that. They had done so much. They had went so far with God, and yet in the end, they did not believe. Friends, that's, that's what happens to too many people who sit in church their whole life. Especially, it happens to kids all the time. We raise them up in church. We try to pour into them. We try to invest into their lives. And if you look at some of the world's most Ardent atheists, some of those who speak most fiercely against the church of the living God, you know where they grew up? They grew up sitting on those pews. They grew up in our youth groups. They grew up singing in our children's choirs. Because we, we made sure that we got them wet, but they never came to Christ. So why does he say that it's impossible for those who have seen all of God's goodness, have seen all of his mercy, have participated in the life of the church? That second explanation I gave you, I do not believe it's completely wrong. These are people who have sat in our church pews, who have sang in our choirs, who have taught in our Sunday school classes. Why is it impossible? Look in verse 6. He says, since they, look, after he says, and then fallen away to restore them to repentance, he says that's impossible. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Think about those who crucified our Lord. Why did they do so? We can... 
We can put together all of these explanations as to why Jesus was crucified. We know, theologically speaking, he was crucified because that's what God sent him to do. We understand that there was a political threat that, that he had toward the Jewish leaders because he was becoming very popular. But in the end, why did they crucify Christ? It's because they did not believe. They did not believe that he was who he had said. They did not believe, and so they looked upon him with content. They did not believe, and so they hated him, and they hated what he was doing. And so the author here of Hebrews makes the same comparison to those who have said that they follow Christ, who have made the claim that they belong to him, and then fall away. What they are ultimately doing is making a mockery of Christ and what he did on the cross. When we say that we love Jesus, and then we wake up one day and we decide we're going to do something else, we make a mockery of what Jesus did. So many people today treat their Christian walk as if it is some social club that they can pay their membership for for a little while and then get out of. They can come in and be a member for a year and try it out. We see these on TV all the time, these 14-day or 30-day or 60-day free trials. And that's what people want to do with Christ. You know, if they like the church, if they like the people, if the music's right, or if the pews are comfortable enough, or if they have enough activities for the kids or for the teenagers, they'll, they'll try it out for a while. And in that trial run, they'll claim the name of Christ. Well, I go down to First Baptist. It's my home church. It's where I go. But their heart is as dark and cold as ever. As a matter of fact, I believe he uses the word impossible here because the more someone does that, the more someone falsely claims that they belong to Christ, the colder and darker and harder their heart becomes. And it comes to the point where he says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. As a matter of fact, I would say that some of these people, we think of them falling away as if they're leaving the church, but I would say many remain there. But they don't want to listen. They don't want to listen to God speak. Oh, there's been plenty of times in my life where I have heard God knocking at the door of my heart, and I wanted to roll over and stay asleep because the more I do, well, the easier it gets, Right? If we sit in church every Sunday, if we give, if we participate, even if we don't love Christ, well, the devil's not knocking at our door. As a matter of fact, he may be making our life better because we sit in the comfort of our false religion and it keeps us feeling good. He says, but it's impossible for them because they have crucified Christ again. See, the one who does this, what they're saying to God, what they're saying to us is that the word is not powerful enough, that Christ's salvation was not complete enough, that God's love is not deep enough. One who falls away says that the Spirit is not strong enough to hold on to them. See, we as Baptists, we believe that God does not let anybody go. The Bible is clear that no one, no one can snatch us from his hand. I believe that no one includes ourselves. We can't go and reach into God's hand and pull ourselves out. When he has hold of us, nothing will let us go. He will not let us go. Nothing can take us from him. But what those who fall away say is, yeah, you can follow after Christ and then fall away. You can follow after Christ and then turn your back on Him. You can follow after Christ and then become part of some false religion that preaches a false gospel that tells you you can get to heaven some other way than through the blood of Christ. When we, when we see this happen, 
It's someone reaching up and smacking God in the face. You wonder then why he uses the word impossible? When someone's heart is this cold, it becomes impossible. These last couple verses in in this section, he compares the situation that is happening to a piece of land. He says, rain fell on this land and it produced a crop that was useful. He says, however, if after a time the thorns and thistles arise, the ground becomes worthless and it's burned. It's interesting because Jesus talks in one of his parables about seeds that are planted. And all of these seeds are planted and Some just never come up and do anything. But there's this one type of seed that it begins to grow, and it looks promising. It looks like something good is going to happen. It it looks like the roots have taken hold and the plant is going to grow up, but it does not take long until it withers and dies. Choked out. It grows for a short while, and then it dies. Friends, this happens way too often. In Matthew's gospel, and you don't need to turn with me, but I want to read this to you. He says, Jesus talking here, says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus takes it very seriously when people falsely claim the name of Christ. It's one reason I believe that the judgment will be severe on those who have taken the name of Christ and started their own false religions that do not honor Him. Here are people who prophesied in Jesus' name, who cast out demons in Jesus' name, who did many mighty works in the name of Christ. And he says, depart from me. I do not know who you are. See, Jesus takes it seriously when we get comfortable. Jesus takes it very seriously when we just do the routine of church, where we go through the motions and God has not changed our heart where we have never known Him, but we try to claim His blessings and mercy and grace. He is not happy with that. And therefore, the writer says that it is impossible. Friends, it's impossible because you and I can't can't call these people back. How do you tell somebody They need something that they think they already have. How do you convince them of that? I'm always amazed when I speak with people about their relationships and looking at it from my perspective, they they have no love between them. They have only animosity, and they desperately need to get things set right. And they both believe they're happy. It happens all the time. They both believe that they love each other. They both believe the other person loves them, except they've never shown any of it. You can't convince someone that they need something that they don't believe they need. When a person believes that they know Christ and are going to heaven, even if they don't, how are you going to convince them otherwise? When they have all the answers to the questions, when they've tasted all the goodness of God, how are you going to convince them otherwise? 
Friends, the unfortunate thing is that this person who he describes here, who he describes as impossible for them to come back to him, it's only in his hands, and you've, you've got no hope of changing their mind. He says, but for you, for you who I'm talking to, beginning in verse 9, it's impossible for them to be restored because they don't see the need for it. He tells them, beginning in verse 9, that they, they need to be known for their fruits. They need to persist. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Remember what he's just said to them. You know, it's been separated for us by a couple of weeks because we can't get it all in on one Sunday. But remember, he said some pretty harsh things to them. He's told them that they need to grow up. They should have already been teachers, but they're still having to drink the milk. They should be eating the meat, and they're drinking the milk. They're still infants and babies, and they need to grow up. And then he lays this on them, that there are some who have turned their back on God, and they're not going to be restored. They are not going to come back to salvation. They are going to die in their religion. They're going to die in their whatever they're doing, their false gospel, and they're going to go to hell, and they're not going to turn. And he says, though, verse 9, we speak in this way. Though I've just said all these things to you, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He tells them they're not to that point yet. (laughs) there's still a little bit there. There, There's still some fruit on the tree. It's not much. Definitely not as much as it should be. If it doesn't grow much, it's going to rot and it's it's going to be gone. But there's a little bit there. There's something there that they can speak of. He says things that belong to salvation. He says you're doing some things that reflect the fact that you have given your heart to Christ. That God is Lord of your life. There are some things there. A little bit. See, they need to mature. They're doing some things that shows that God is working in their life. And God's not going to overlook that, he says here. God is is not unjust. He will not overlook what they're doing. But there's no security for them and squeaking by. See, when I read this, that's the sense that I get from the Hebrews that he's talking to. It, it sounds an awful lot like the church in our country in our day today. People are squeaking by. That's what I did in college. That was my entire undergraduate existence. I squeaked by. Every time I was about to lose my scholarship, I got my grades up enough not to lose my scholarship. I squeaked by. My GPA was just enough to get into grad school because I squeaked by. It's what most of us do most of our lives, right? It's what a lot of you do at work. Don't lie. You're in church. I'm the preacher. Most of you squeak by. You do just the minimum. When my kids do chores, they squeak by. That's it. That's all they do, no more. They do just enough that they won't fall under my wrath and discipline. Just enough. That's what they're doing here. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to the people who just squeak by. They just do enough that there's something there that they can point to. They do just enough that when the preacher is standing up to do their funeral, the family can give him enough talking points to get his 15 minutes out of the way, get him out to the graveyard and bury him. When what God calls us to do is to do so much with the blessings that He has given us that it forces a preacher to toil over what he's going to say. How could you get it into a funeral sermon? When you get to judgment day, what God is desiring is that when He talks about your works, it takes a long time. You've got eternity. There's no hurry. But some people will get up to the front of the line and they'll be gone before you know it. The list will not be long. 
We as Baptists have got so so comfortable with this idea that it's not our works that get us to heaven that we think we don't ever need to do anything for God. We tell people to come to the front, give their life to Christ, be baptized and satisfied. And the Bible does not speak of that type of religion. The Bible never gives us that opportunity. It never gives us that pass to just squeak by. But that's what these people are doing. Friends, there is no pride in squeaking by. It's amazing to me how many people claim the name of Christ, but they want to see how close they can get to missing heaven. What can I get away with? Paul talks about that. He asks if we should just keep sinning so that grace should abound. I think some people have misread that verse. They wonder, how much can I sin? How much can I keep doing that is against God and still remain with Him? Our author warns about this because it's that very type of attitude that will cause many people to miss heaven completely. I've heard many stories, and you have as well, of people who have decided that they're going to come to Christ when they get near death. Maybe I'll, on my deathbed, I'll I'll give my life to him then. I have no doubt that some people get that opportunity. But I've visited a lot of people who on the day of their death were not awake enough to give their heart to Christ. Maybe cancer had eaten their body to the point where they were giving them high doses of medicine so that they would remain calm and not in pain. But if your goal was to choose that day to come to Christ and you are not awake to do it, you'll miss that day and miss heaven completely. He warns us about trying to squeak by. He gives us the alternative. He says that we need to persist. He says, show earnestness in your work. Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Put simply... And in a language that we can better understand, don't be a bum. Don't be a bum and try to get by on poor effort. Now, as one who has went from going to college to teaching college classes, I understand my professor's frustrations with my squeaking by. It's amazing how many students want you to let them squeak by. They want to see if they can get by with less than the assignment. They want to see if they can get by with subpar work. And yet we try to do that with God, and He tells us, don't do that, persist. Though your works will not save you, they show clearly if you have been saved. They reveal to the world around you what is in your heart. A lot of Christians don't think that matters. It matters. They don't care if people judge them. They don't care what other people say, and that is foolishness. We do not live as anonymous Christians. If people around you, people you work with, people in your family, people who see you on a regular basis have no idea that you follow Christ, you have a heart problem. Listen, for me, it's easy, and I can, I can slide by and get away with it. All I have to do is say, I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor at First Iker. Now, that may make them wonder, but I can say I'm a pastor and I get by. They're pastors that die every day and go to hell. They're deacons and Sunday school teachers and church leaders that die every day and did not know Christ. People need to see what's in your heart, and it needs to reflect the God that you say you serve. I think it's interesting as he uses this last phrase in verse 12. He says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you go all the way back, you go all the way back to the Old Testament, You you go all the way back to what happens in Exodus and then going into the book of Numbers, we see that they send spies. When they had gotten to the edge of the promised land, they're, they're right there, they're about to go in and they send these guys to scope it out. 
And these guys come back with this report, and it's not good. It says, we can't do this. They have giants in the land. They have tall walls that we cannot get over. Ten of these guys say we can't do it. And the other two, Joshua and Caleb, say, listen, God has given us this land. Let's go up and take it now. It's ours. But the people gathered there that day did not have faith, and they did not have patience And therefore, they did not inherit the promises. They turned back in the wilderness, and they died. That's what happens. It's what happens to us when we decide that we are not going to follow God where he leads us, that we're going to fall away, that we're going to give up, that we're going to give in to the temptations of the world. We will fall, and we will die. Not we'll have a hard time, not we'll go through the trials of this world or whatever, we'll die. He tells us, don't be like that. Be like Joshua and Caleb who said, we can do this. God has called us to this. We can go into this land and we can take it. It is ours. They imitate those who have faith and have patience. Friends, this... This whole section is about the danger of what is called apostasy. It's a theological term, and it can be defined as the abandonment of a previously held loyalty. That's what he's warning us about here. Probably the greatest example, and maybe infamous would be more appropriate than greatest, probably the best example we can use of what this looks like is a man by the name of Judas. Here's a one who had been called by Jesus. Here's a person who the Bible describes as sharing the good news, as ministering to other people in Jesus' name. But Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Christ and then died alone with no hope. We see that he is sorry for what he did. He's mournful, but he does not repent. He does not turn back. He dies, and he dies with no hope. Because the one who he had once put his faith in, the one who he had once committed to, he turned his back on. Though Judas is an appropriate example, I believe that the problem he's talking about is much simpler. How many people who once came to church here and claimed the name of Christ have turned their back on Him? They've turned their back on Christ. They once sat in these pews. They once sang songs and listen to preaching here, but they have turned their back on Christ. Maybe a better question this morning is, how many of you are not far from that? I'm not talking about going to church elsewhere. I'm talking about abandoning Jesus. Too many have chosen that route. How many people will find eternal punishment Because they tried to be cute by making a statement about hypocrites in the church or make some type of statement about not liking the color of the carpet. Could you imagine that? That one day on Judgment Day, there will be people standing before God, and there will be this list of things that they did. They went to church, and they gave, and they sang, and they helped, but they did not get to heaven because one day they turned their back on God because they didn't like the color of carpet. And in doing that, they proved that they weren't ever really believers in Christ. And that was the turning point. They decided to stop singing. Stop hearing the gospel, the only news that might have could have saved them at some point. They, they decided one day to never come back because of a color, of fabric that you walk on. 
That's the reality. The reality is that people turn their back on God, and it reveals itself in many different ways. There are many who awaken one day to eternal torment because though they heard the good news and attended church and saw the mighty works of God, they never trusted Him, and therefore they could not endure. Theologically, this is what's called the perseverance of the saints, that that those who know Christ will persevere to the end. Those who know Him will continue following Him. They will follow after Him. They will seek His face. They will seek His heart. Yes, they're going to go through troubles. Yes, they're going to go through times of disappointment and despair. We have all been there, but they will follow after Christ. Friends, that, that's where we can place our hope. I want to read something to you as I close. Our writer here says, We always have to be careful here and admit our own inability to read the hearts of men and women. And I don't know your heart this morning. You don't know anyone else's. He says, Nevertheless, this is an implication of have that we have to take seriously. If you're content with merely drinking in the rain but not concerned to honor God in your life, if you're unable or unwilling to hold fast to God and praise His name in times of trouble, then that is a very alarming sign that you ought to provoke fundamental reflection regarding the state of your soul. Listen, the fruit that we have because of what God has done in our life is our only security. I was baptized when I was 11 years old. I was saved at the First Baptist Church of Taylorsville in the back. Dr. David Bone was the pastor who led me to Christ. I was baptized in November of that year at East Taylorsville Baptist Church. Gary Jennings was the one who baptized me, probably Josh, and and half the people in Taylorsville. I don't find any security in that. Because when I was 11, I was really dumb. I didn't know how the world worked. I didn't know anything about sin. I didn't understand what things were doing. I know that God saved me on that day, but if all my hope is in that day, then, man, it's a long life after 11. I put my security in the fact that God daily, he points out when I sin. When I read his word, it is transformational. And I don't have to be reading in these great verses and in Hebrews. I can be in the book of Numbers and trying to read about what God has done with many tribes and God continues to speak to me and that's where I find my security. I find my security in knowing that he went to the cross and died even though I was sinful. That is where our hope is. Friends, I want to encourage you as honestly as I can That if it has been since that day when God called you that He has spoken to you, if it's been since that day that He called you to Himself that He has convicted you of your sin, we need to have a talk. Because you should be concerned with your soul. Because my God, the God of the Bible, speaks to His people and He continues to do so. He continues to direct us and guide us and lead us and He never abandons us. And any time when we feel far from Him, it's because we have left and not Him. So I just want to encourage you this morning. As we get ready to close, we get ready to sing. Don't put your trust in a seat in that pew. Don't put your trust in the person standing behind this pulpit. Don't put your trust in the name on the sign out there or something you did when you were five years old or six years old or seven years old, put your trust in the fact that our God still moves in our hearts and lives today. He still speaks to us and guides us. And if he is not speaking to you, friends, maybe, maybe today you need to give your heart to him. Maybe it's going to be hard because you've walked that aisle before, you've been through those waters or whatever it is, but maybe today he's calling you. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we 
are so thankful that though we run far, though it may be impossible for us to call someone back who has fallen away, God, nothing is impossible for you. God, I imagine in our midst this morning, there are those who, God, are far from you. I just pray that you call them back. God, that you just, you speak to their heart. You show them how desperately they need you. God, there are others here who have given thought to giving up. They've thought about turning away. God, they're tired. They're hungry or... God, they're disappointed, whatever it is. God, I pray that you strengthen their heart this morning. You call them to persist, to imitate those who have faith and patience, to those who are willing to wait to hear you move, to see you move, to witness your goodness, God. Just call their hearts this morning. Lord, I thank you that you speak. God, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to have this time of invitation. I just ask that you let God speak to you. i
Ten thousand times. 